listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. We had a little family excursion to the zoo yesterday. And uh, for those of you who may remember or have recently experienced taking a nearly two-year-old girl to the zoo, um, it's it's just this amazing reminder of the teaching. And I say that just because... (laughs) um, everything to my daughter was this fresh, new experience. Absolutely pure. Whether it was seeing the uh, the little, I think they called them the poison dart frogs. You know, they had this little exhibit, you know, where this, these, these little frogs are this amazing yellow. And there was one right on the uh, right on the glass, right at about her level, and she's looking at it, and it's looking right back her, at her. And she says, Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and then the same thing when we went and saw the fruit bats. They have a collection at the Oakland Zoo of, uh, they, they call them flying foxes. And, and by the way, just a little side note, if any of you go to Sydney Harbor in Australia, and you don't take the climb up the harbor bridge, you're missing out. It's one of the neatest things I've ever done on any, you know, of my adventures was climbing, climbing that bridge. There's a tour. It wasn't like I was being derelict or something. But uh, going on that tour, I, I could see as we were standing up there, there's this swarm of just this huge mass of what looked like birds to me. Uh, that were flying, flying in, and the the guide said, "Look at that! Look at that! What do you think? What do you think those are? Like it looks like uh, seagulls or something." He says, "Now, mate, they're not seagulls. They're bats." And as they started to fly by, my God, he was right, and they were pretty much the size of a third grader. These things flying through the air. Anyway, they had a, an exhibit where several of these were at the at the zoo. What was Cade's response? Wow, you know. Same thing with the tiger, same thing with the elephant. Everything, but everything, was a wow. And it was, like I said, such a great reminder. The minute we let our mind kind of fall to the side of our intention and our awareness is the minute we start seeing a wow in just about everything. It's not necessarily that we become three-year-olds, or two-year-olds is in her case, but or nearly two. But it's that that wow begins to kind of take over. We begin to see something mysterious, something magical, something truly amazing. We have, if you will, a beginner's mind, a certain naivete mixed with life. We've had life experience. 
but we start to be able to look at that life experience with fresh eyes. We begin to experience this life with a fresh sense of felt awareness. Um, it was just very inspiring and pretty damn cute, too. <laughs> Um, so as we practice this evening, let it be a wow, no matter what is going on, no matter what is going on, if you're in discomfort, let there be a wow in relationship to the discomfort, physical discomfort. Same goes for emotional discomfort. If there's something in you that's clinging to doubt or worry, let's say, I'm making this up, but let's say there's something in you that's really being kind of pulled into that space of negativity. Your, your negativity, in other words, has uh, kind of uh, woken up a little bit in your experience. Let there be a wow in relationship to that. There's a huge qualitative difference between, wow, there's a lot of that stuff again. There's a difference between that and, God dang it, here it is again, right? There's a huge, huge difference. That may not sound like, you know, may sound very subtle, but the subtlety, despite the fact it's very, very thin, you know, it's a very, very, very small space to go, that's a radical shift in the way we meet our lives. And meditation allows us to kind of practice, let it, we begin to practice that shift, I guess is the best way I could put it in this moment. Be the wow. Be the wow. So back to the zoo. <laughs> One of the most fascinating things was this. They were uh, doing this thing where they were kind of I don't know if, if the correct term would be to corral, but they were putting together a, a batch of um, giraffes. There were several in this particular enclosure, and they were kind of uh, funneling them off, just like you might find uh, cattle, you know, how they get kind of uh, pushed out of the out of pasture land into, um, you know, in for, for milking or for slaughter or whatever it happened to be. Uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming the giraffes were not going into slaughter because the market for giraffe burger these days is pretty, pretty minimal. But there was this saying that Suzuki Roshi, my teacher's teacher, what he always used to say, and he said, you want to give your bull uh, plenty of pasture land. You want to give it plenty of space. And the bull or uh, the ox, it, it's got different, different, um, different names, but essentially, if we're going to use the, the metaphor of the bull, what we're looking at here is our body and our mind connection. This idea we have of a self. You want to give it a lot of space so that your meditation can be you know, just very, very, very open. You give your mind, if you will, tons and tons of space. That's one way of doing practice. Giving the mind tons and tons of space. 
What are you doing as you're sitting there? Nothing. I'm just, I'm just being here. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is to corral or, um, uh, you know, corral the, the bull into, you know, take, take it out of the pasture land and squeeze it into something. If you've seen a, a rodeo ever and you know how they've got these just massive bulls that are in this pen and they're just, they're held, okay? That's, that's another way of doing it. Creating a situation where we train our minds um, to just, we, 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 we pinch it down. There are all sorts of techniques uh, that can help do this, different meditation techniques that allow the mind to get kind of squeezed into a place where it just can't move anymore. I think both versions of uh, meditation can both require their own kind of skill. Both can be very, very effective. Um, but in my experience, I have seen that the more we try to pin ourselves down, the more explosive the mind gets the minute the gate opens. That the, 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 the bucking, if you will, begins the minute we start to kind of take, take space away from the mind. We, we start loosening up a little bit, which makes it difficult in the real world at times. Integrating uh, the, you know, your stillness practice means that you carry your stillness from meditation into your day-to-day as opposed to, well, when I meditate, I meditate. During my day, it's an entirely different situation. Well, that's really common as we begin our practice, but over time, what we want to be able to do is integrate the stillness that we find, literally sow it. Actually, you know, that's what sutra means. It's to sow the teaching into the fabric of our day-to-day life. Um, any way you cut it, whether you're one of these people, if you really need, for instance, a much more of a, you know, a, a, a kind of um, a technique-driven practice, there are all sorts of great ones out there that I think are really, really good. They're just not my style. They're not the way um, I was schooled. Uh, and so I, I just don't feel, I don't feel very, you know, adept at, at giving people, you know, powerful, you know, powerful lessons on how to, you know, if you will, corral the giraffe, you know, or, or you know, uh, put the uh, bull into the chute. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm as good at that as, um, as being a reflection of what I taught, or what I was taught, which was watch your mind, watch your body. Now, what's doing the watching? It's just a very, very powerful, powerful way of doing meditation, I think. And I think it's a little bit easier. It's maybe a little slower, but it's a little bit easier to integrate that into one's day-to-day. I think it was Philip uh, Kaplow Roshi, uh, I may be getting this wrong, but he had this statement. I remember reading it somewhere. I'd I'd footnote it if I could remember. Uh, But basically he says you can you can ripen as a practitioner like fruit on a tree. Okay? Or the practice 
can shake the tree. The fruit may fall quickly, and it may ripen on the ground, but it's maybe not as sweet. I probably bastardized that metaphor. Just, I've, I've done irreparable damage to it, I'm sure. <laughs> but still, you, you kind of get this idea that, that your job and my job as, as practitioners is to, you know, it's the, it's the three B's of, of practice. We've, we've mentioned a couple times, and for those of you who are new, just be quiet. Okay, be quiet. Be still. Be quiet. Be still. And be alert. If you can do those three things, if you can be quiet, be still, and be alert, then we're talking about a, a really potent, powerful practice. Usually the hardest one for people is to be still initially. It can, you know... What do you mean still? Oh, geez, you know, my mind's going like this, 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 and that's very natural. It's very natural. But over time, with, a, you know, a dedicated practice, it begins to slow down. Our minds begin to slow down. Um, quietude begins to kind of take over. It's not something we have to work at. It's something we recognize is underneath all the noise. That in other words, all the noise is extra. The quiet is what's always there. And for you physicists out there, most of you are probably going, uh, duh, yeah, that's true. Movement is born out of stillness. And so what we're doing here is we're really just trying to kind of uncover what's always already there. The one that is kind of the, uh, the, uh, the ass kicker is being alert. And the body and the mind will do anything they can to avoid being alert. The number one most difficult thing, uh, biggest distraction for most people, especially as they've been sitting for a while, is sleepiness. Now, if you think about it, this is exactly what a mind that is being challenged correctly by this teaching is going to do. It's incredibly stressful to be quiet and to be still. It's even more stressful to be quiet and to be still with the full intention of getting past all the insulation. So, the mind very naturally is going to start saying, you know, shut down now. Too much. Too much. Don't want awakening. Awakening would mean I no longer have a job. Or I might have a job, but it's not nearly as well paid as it is now. This sucks. <laughs> Go to sleep. Or the pain is just too much. Or the... You know, all these great stories that have been authored. This isn't really a good time for me to be meditating. You know, um, whatever, whatever it is. And this is why I think communities can be so helpful because we support each other in making sure that come hell or high water, we're getting on the cushion together. Whatever state we're in, we're getting in there together. We don't quite have that luxury. 
we are all members of the world. Everybody in this room, in some way, contributes, you know, either in large measure or small measure to the way this world functions outside of monastic sensibility. Which is exactly why this is such a great experiment. It also seems to be working. Being alert means that we fearlessly take on what's going on. That we don't hide from anything. Being alert means, as I say again and again and again, that we don't flinch. Being alert means that we don't waver from our intention. Awakening becomes this huge, huge aspect to who we are becoming. It becomes a massive, indeed I would say, it must become the most important thing. It's like the tip of this spear. It's, it's to awaken. One of the ways that we can dull our alertness in relationship to this real easily is we can want awakening. We want it. Because it'll bring us peace. Well, then you really don't want awakening. What you want is what it'll bring you. In this case, peace. If you want to awaken, if you want enlightenment, you have to let where you think it's going to take you go. And you just have to be ready. And the only way we're ever going to get ready is if we are still quiet and alert. One of the nice guarantees, though, of being still quiet and alert is that uh, awakening shows up. Egos love creating a story around that, which is, well, what if it doesn't? You know, what if I croak before? You know, yeah, yeah, that would suck totally, wouldn't it? You're just not alert enough, I guess. <laughs> But if we can just, in, in those simple, simple terms, meet our life for the next week, just the next week, if you can just, just for the next week, do your best every single day to see if you can under, uh, under uh, how would I, what's the best way to put this? Undercut was the word I wanted to use. Undercut your habitual inertia or, you know, <laughs> if you can just as often as possible even if it's one second out of every 12 hours or something like that just try to be alert to what's going on from a place of physical stillness and mental quietude try it and try it with a little bit of fire There's, a, there's a, an, another, another way out of the, uh, this, this beautiful 
alert spaciousness, which is to uh, to judge it, you know, <laughs> to think it's something that it's not, to turn our practice into to 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 view ourselves as practitioners in ways that aren't entirely honest. Well, I'm doing enough. Try a little more. Well, I, I want to be comfortable with this. Of course, that's okay. It's okay to be comfortable. But if you're after comfort, admit it. If you're after awakening, awakening goes beyond comfort and discomfort. I've shared the story of uh, the, the four kinds of horses. Uh, and my, my teacher used to talk about this. Is that the, it's a metaphor. It's an it's a, uh, old Chinese fable uh, about how, how practitioners meet, meet up with the Dharma. You have, um, you have four types of horses. One begins moving when it, when it sees the shadow of the whip. The next one begins moving when it actually hears the crack of the whip. The next type of horse needs to feel the sting of the whip. And then the fourth horse, and this is my teacher, this is when he began like drilling holes into me with his stare. The fourth kind of horse is a bloody horse. The bloody horse is the type of practitioner that wants to feel really good the whole time. The one that wants to feel good is going to get beaten around pretty ferociously until they lose that idea that this all has to feel good, that, that enlightenment is going to bring me something. It'll bring you nothing. hard to market that, but yes, it'll bring you nothing. But that nothingness, when we can rest there, in that nothingness, as that nothingness, we're fulfilled totally. A Christian might say, we shall not want from that place. and ADHD affect the process of awakening? Or being on the spectrum, autism, that kind autism, of thing. Autism, yeah. yeah. The, uh, uh, I, I'm going to dodge the question slightly because I think the jury's still out from what I can tell. I mean, we don't have psychographs done on people who are autistic and then they're, they're uh, meeting up with the truth beyond name and form mm -hmm. that I know of. I don't know of the research that's been, that, you know, that's been done, done on that. Um, when it comes to IQ and um, uh, ADHD in general, uh, I would say I would say IQ 
is a, a blessing in that it helps us process vast amounts of text, of information, of teaching. Um, the problem with IQ is that the higher it goes, it seems, the more able one is to uh, you know, reflect a certain intellectual power. Is, is, it, it's as if it holds hands with delusion. Because most people who are really gifted intellectually are really bloody horses. They, because they've, they've, been, they've been able to figure everything out. Their entire life, they have been walking with, you know, in bodies that always know. I can figure this out. I don't know the answer to that, but I bet I can find out. You know, right? And so, as, instead of a practice, being able to kind of uh, release into a practice that is about releasing that whole story of how smart you might be, it tends to be the major impediment towards liberation. ADHD, you're looking at somebody who has m major ADHD. And the cool thing about um, ADHD you know, that I went through as a young person is that it, it, was, it fueled curiosity. I wouldn't have gotten here in you know this work this line of work i would never have gone to the you know into a monastic setting had i not been bouncing off the walls internally right so i don't know that adhd necessarily gets in the way as long as that adhd can be channeled to fuel uh, a practice that deepens of its own accord and that's the trick i had i had a great teacher I don't know if, it, if that's required. I know it was for me. It was brutal. Actually, I don't know too many people who've gone through the, the process, the awakening process, who haven't, where it hasn't destroyed them on some level. However, their practice was so stable as they went through that destruction that despite the fact that outwardly you could see that it was wiping them out and so forth, you also knew they, they could handle it. You know? When, uh, um, I mentioned this before, but you know, you can look at this, this process as clarifying butter. You've got to turn up the heat enough to where you get the, the solids, right? So that you can scoop the solids off. If you don't, if it's not hot enough, you get melted butter. But it, it, butter itself can't withstand a tremendous amount of heat. And, but when you clarify it, when you, when you turn up the heat enough to where you can skim the solids away, where you can purify, if you will, you then have something that offers flavor and can withstand very high temperatures. These people that were, were broken down, they'd, had, they'd skimmed the stuff off, and they were withstanding very high temperatures. So it's, uh, it's, this is high stakes, and, and it's risky. And for that reason, um, oftentimes I think, you know, people with higher IQs are like, screw it. I'll, I'll go back to law school. <laughs> <laughs> Not one person laughed at that. That was really interesting. I, 
<laughs> go back to law school and people behind you would look at me like this. <laughs> what? What? Same thing. Attorneys, Zen masters, same thing. Yes. Yeah. That's kind of a long answer, Gina. Yeah. But. I'm still curious about it, though. Yeah, me too. I think it would be great. Yeah, because I'm curious about um, people in my family with a little bit lower IQs. Mm -hmm. And is it, you know, there's something that has to take you there. Right. And then you let go. Yeah. Well, let me, let, me, let me just, let me then, I'll be really direct. Um, this does not require, freedom does not require smarts. It's available to anybody. It does not require any intellectual acumen whatsoever. Not even the certain type of smarts? Like if you think about, what is it, Gardner? Gardner's seven different kinds of intelligence. Introspective would probably help. Transpersonal something. There's got to be something. Yeah, maybe. But again, that's just a story. It's just a story. You know, you ha I think that there are people who have an an, uh, an intrapersonal uh, level of in, of intelligence, if you will. Their their intrapersonal IQ might be really high. I think that you have to have. In, uh, I would agree with you on that. You, but there, there again, I don't know what research has been done. You know, I, I'm dying to know. I think it would be cool. Why don't you go get a PhD? Tell us about it. Yeah. Finally, yeah. yes. I'm curious, um, in bringing one's practice, or trying to bring one's practice into everyday life, um, part of it is also And I keep running across um, uh, somebody who used to be in my life mm -hmm. who keeps throwing meanness my way. And I keep stepping aside and I mean, you're stepping aside. It sounds like what you're saying is part of this work requires kindness, and it just letting stuff kind of go by. let it go right by you. Right. Not reacting, just mm -hmm. yeah, there it goes again. There's the, the there goes the jackass again. There, you know, there goes the right. There goes the comment. Ooh, sting. Okay, what would happen if you actually called it? That hurts. Because then what you're doing is you're standing, you're meeting the test. The person, most likely, is trying to see where you are. Okay? And by choosing to do absolutely nothing, because that's the vision of what, this is what a good a spiritual person would just let that go, right? Well, a spiritual person also might say, that really hurt. Don't ever say that to me again. Or, I've had enough. I don't need this. You can say that lovingly, can't you? By not responding from a place of truth, we can potentially allow for the other person to continually enact 
negative karma. And that's very selfish and egotistical on our part to allow that to happen. It's one way of looking at it. A spiritual person does not give in. They face their life with full attention. They're totally alert to what's actually going on. They don't avoid anything. So if we cloak ourselves in some spiritual story, well, this is, a spiritual person would not let that bother them. Then what we're, what we're doing is we're actually building reservoirs of denial that will need to be cooked away on that fire. Does that kind of make sense? That's, I'm not saying that's comfortable, but this isn't about comfort. You know, this is about standing into your truth. If someone's hurting you, and you keep going into, you know, you keep walking willingly into the daggers, and it still keeps, still keeps hurting you, and so forth. That's 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 ego playing something out that's really, really negative, actually, for you and for the other person. It's causing harm. And the one vow we take on this path is not to cause harm, not only for ourselves, but for the other person or other people. So play that out in your head. See where you land with it and see, see what comes up. Because you, you, the appropriate response will come from you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There she is. Yes. In the clarifying butter, you, know, you, you mm-hmm. talked about scooping up the solids. Mm-hmm. Can you give examples of what the solids Yeah. Um, if you've been on a retreat for more than a day, midway through day two usually, stuff kind of starts to settle a little bit. That settling is clarification. Okay? So, um, a great example of, um, of uh, <laughs> metaphorically, a milk solid would be as you are meditating and your mind is going, you're playing like literally, you're playing Jeopardy in your head for no apparent reason. You've got stuff going on here and here and here. And then pretty soon, the mind realizes, man, this body is serious. It's not going to move. Huh. Oh, well. And it kind of surrenders. At that point, there's this, this offering up of those solids, so to speak, that, can, that then just kind of clear off, clear off the top. Now, you can take that, that happens not only in a retreat, you, t- you extend the retreat, and it happens, even, it happens at deeper and deeper levels. You extend that retreat even further, same thing happens. If it becomes part of your life, you'll find that solids continually show up, but they tend to be singular and show up in smaller groups. Globs. Yeah, smaller globs, so to speak. So it's not so much focusing on what the solids are as, as sort of letting them settle and let the clarity be there. Yes, okay. yeah. See, I, my, my mind had grabbed on it. What are the solids? Must. Must find solids. Yes, yes. Well, that's, that's a really good, that's a, actually a really cool question. Yeah. Um, I think the solids are different for everybody, except their source is always the same. Mind. It's always mind. It's just mind. Yeah. 
And what you, it's not that you, <laughs> you cook away the mind. It's that you cook away the aspects of mind that you just don't need. You then are able to use mind as a tool as opposed to getting tooled by mind. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you heard it. That was a good one. Yes. Yeah. So talk about the, the heat required to do this. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about, you know, turning up the heat and standing the heat and clarifying so you can stand more heat and all that. What does that mean to everybody, to us here? Um, how do we control the how do you know when to turn up the heat? How do you know what it looks like? How do you do it? How do you do it? Where's the knob? Where's the Where's the knob? <laughs> it's uh, it's called sitting still, being quiet, and being alert. And every one of you is an alchemist. Every one of you knows how to turn lead into gold. It's innate. Okay? Um, yeah, yeah. It, you were, you were, we, we are talking about butter, but you're asking about how to, how to turn that up. You, you turn that up the minute you sit still. The minute you have, the minute you start actually playing out a meditation practice where there's quietude, where you're being quiet, where you're being still, and you're being alert, the minute that happens, the heat. The heat, it, you, you don't have to do anything. It just it starts. What you have to do is make sure that you're there for it. When you start recognizing that this is not about what feels good, but about what's important. And I know that sounds kind of brutal, but just... I don't, I don't know of a better way to say it. Give me a week. Maybe I'll come up with a better way to say it. But the minute, the minute this starts becoming really important, we begin to un, uncover very naturally and spontaneous, spontaneously how to do this. You know? I need to sit more. Ah, hmm. I should follow that impulse. And you do. You've just gone up from medium to medium high. Does that kind of make sense? Right, so just doing what we're doing here gets. Doing just what you're doing here. In other words, if your meditation practice is basically showing up on Mondays, listening to, you know, Zen Boy speak, um, this is little more than um, a night at the movies for you. It's not going to do much might make you feel a little better. Ooh, that was a good talk. Or that talk sucked. I would have said this. I feel better knowing that I would have said it this way, actually. I got the Zen Master beat. You know, whatever. I mean, it can go in all these different directions. If it's just this, just, just this time we're together, it's probably not enough. Now, it might be. <laughs> if the talk is really good... <laughs> Watch everybody float out of here. Oh, you know, that would know, be a good one. But, you know, you kind of get the idea. It's, uh, this, is, this is where we kind of all meet.
after a week of life. And within that life, there needs to be quietude, there needs to be stillness, and there needs to be total alertness. If you can do that, everybody's practice just kind of takes off exponentially. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Even when they're, you know, dead zones, you know, when we're in the doldrums of our practice, we still, there's a certain kind of quiet strength that kind of carries us through there. And it's, again, it's a great reason, what, a great, um, it's great to have community, you know, to help support that. You know, it reminds us that we're not alone. We're totally connected all the time. Yeah. You're talking about if you're if you're just being here and you're not doing anything during the week. Mm-hmm. If you're doing, you know, an hour or two a day sitting anyway during the week every day. Yeah. How does how does one turn up the heat in that case? Make sure you're doing it right. Yeah. Stay awake. Okay. That's <laughs> 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 okay. Keep trying. Yeah. Keep trying. Yeah. Don't, just don't make the mistake. I don't know why I'm telling you this story, but I'm, I'm gonna. There was this, this guy who'd ordained, I felt so bad for him because he ordained as a priest, in my view, very prematurely. Um, and, and, because I think you gotta know. You gotta know on some level, it's like, I'm making a huge commitment here. It's not just the bald head, you know, on the robes. It's, it's like, this is this is now this massive life choice that you're that you're taking, and so what he what he was doing I I would like I'd go down and uh, I would always make myself some green tea about a half hour prior to the 5 a.m. sitting. So at 4:30 I'd bop into the uh, you know the, the tea area and make my tea and so forth. And this guy was brewing coffee. He'd sit there, he'd kind of look at it, and I could see that he's like almost falling asleep as he's watching the coffee get brewed and so forth. And he and I essentially were doing exactly the same thing. I was having a little bit of tea. He was just, he wasn't just having a cup. He was like going for pretty much half the pot. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, and he sat not too far away from me. He, He seemed so horrifically uncomfortable in this new priestly skin, you know. And I, I remember saying, how's that uh, coffee thing working out for you? You know, and he's like, it's like he'd been caught. You know, you, can, you know and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, Zen monks drink coffee, but, you know, he, he was, he's like, this is the only damn way I can stay awake. You know, I don't know what happened to him. I, I, I didn't see him after I, after I was a resident, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's late. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.